I'm so excited because today we are interviewing my friend and fertility and women's health expert, Amy Ralph. She's also an acupuncturist and coach. She's the best-selling author of books, Chill Out and Get Healthy, Yes, You Can Get Pregnant, and my favorite, Body Belief. Amy works with clients all over the world virtually um, with over 20 years of practice, and she holds her master's degree in traditional oriental medicine. Welcome, Amy. So, Amy, we're so excited to have you on. I would love for you to share what led you to be a fertility specialist and wellness. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I'm happy to be here. So honored. What led me to be a fertility specialist? I mean, I came out of, you know, so I went to grad school for acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Um, And prior to that, I was in grad school for neuroscience and planning to go to medical school. And so when I first started practicing Chinese medicine, I was really kind of, you know, clear that like I didn't want to specialize. I just because Chinese medicine is so much just about like, you know, health and then everything should be vital and, and work properly from there. So it's it's very like foundational constitutional medicine. And that's what I had intended. When I finished grad school, I was very much going to be like a GP, general practitioner. Uh, and then but women, woman after woman started coming to me with like menstrual stuff and then fertility stuff and you know, and I really just kept that same kind of approach. And one thing I say all the time is your fertility is an extension of your health. And so I've really kept that approach, you know, in my clinical practice. But I think too, you know, knowing myself and I am a fairly competitive individual and definitely when I was younger, like the ego was definitely a little more involved than I suppose it is these days. (laughs) Fertility is like a lot of what we do in Chinese medicine. A lot of what we do in medicine in general is very, you know, subjective. Like we don't have these measurement tools. That's like, you know, it's like a pain scale on a one to 10. How are you feeling today? Do you know what I mean? That's very subjective. We don't have a lot of objective measurements, but fertility, we do, right? You're either pregnant or you're not, you know, like we either get to that healthy baby or we're not. So I think that kind of started to be a real motivating factor for me. And then also looking at labs and I could see, you know, estrogen improve or FSH go down or AMH go up. And, you know, so that became a big piece of it for me. And, you know, I didn't really get too serious about treating fertility until it was probably my first fertility book came out in 2015. So I'd say, you know, 2010 or something like that, maybe like six years into practice is when it started to really, it almost like what the, you know, if you want to be like universal about it or energetic, it's like what started coming to me. I've just started treating more and more women trying to conceive. I lived in New York City at the time. It was like a very typical demographic of New Yorkers. And it, it just became all of a sudden, it was like I was the girl to go to for fertility stuff. And yeah. That's so funny. Do you think there was a reason that they were attracted to coming to you for that? Or do you think it was like a victim of circumstance being New York City or combination? Yeah, I think they were attracted to me and my background, right? Because I had such a strong Western medicine background. And I also have honestly such a deep respect for Western medicine. I'm not a hater. You know, like I'm very much about integration and I'm all about like, we need the right tests and you need the right doctor. And, you know, so I think especially when dealing with, I mean, this is my demographic. So obviously I have tunnel vision, but like when dealing with fertility challenges, I mean, it's just so overwhelming and disappointing. I think the esoteric and, you know, that type of medicine can be so helpful because it gets you out of your head. But I also think having a practitioner that practices in energy medicine that like will recommend Chinese herbs and dietary stuff, but can also look at your labs and point things out really, you know, spoke to my community. 
Totally. It speaks to me to have like that balance of all the methods and practical and also what I like to call a bit woo. I think yeah, it totally. goes into making a baby. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, where it's like, yeah, there's always magic. The missing ingredient that no one can really provide is that magic and the divine timing, um, which is the hardest part for so many, including myself. I get really, you know, impatient with a lot of my clients. But yeah, I like you know, I'm really into the woo and I like it and I love getting down and talking and having spiritual conversations and all of that and about openness and are we in receiving mode. But then also think there's, you know, real, you know, if you will, like black and white issues that we need to look at and address. And we can do that from all sorts of ways. But, you know, I don't believe there's any such thing as unexplained infertility, which is like the most popular diagnosis out there for women to get. It's, you know, can I curse it? I think it's a bullshit diagnosis. You know, it's just it's lazy. No one's looking at what the root problem actually is. And they just want to blanket and state that. And so to me, I'm like, no, we got to look at all the pieces and then I can help you figure this out. And that is why people go to you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And I fight for them. I fight for them. I have incredible hope when there is none, you know. And I always say I have the luxury of being hopeful because, you know, now I'm two decades, 20 years of experience. You know, and at the, like the busiest of my career, I was seeing like 60 patients a week. Like I have seen thousands of patients. And what I can say to that is I have the luxury of being optimistic because I can, you know, maybe at this stage of my career, I can probably count on two hands all the women that didn't succeed in this. Yeah. Or chose a different path on their own. That's different. Do you know what I mean? But like the women who tried everything and didn't get to the other side, but they also did find peace in their journey and on that. So I don't know that it's always, you know, that they fail. I don't believe in failure as actually a thing. But yeah, it's like I do. I provide. I feel like I fight for them. You know, I'm a cheerleader and I'm an educated one. Right. So I'm going to point out all the things that you need to be looking at, you know, and then I also feel like with the years of experience, you know, I have very firm opinions about things. That's if you can, all things considering a 20-year career and the height of it, 60 clients a week, that's a very small number of people who have not conceived or you they might have gone on to, you don't know. Well, that's it. And like how to, the tracking system is also really difficult there too, you know, or I'll hear from someone years <laughs> later, you know, like aim, you know, I moved, I da, 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 or I got divorced and I just wanted to like remind, you know, I get the chills thinking about it. But like, I mean, the stories or that women like, I mean, I get approached now in public sometimes and people like I had it happen recently. This woman was just like, oh my God, are you? And I was like, this is so awkward. I'm like, yeah. I was out, like, out to lunch with a friend and she was like, you're Amy Raup. And then she showed me a picture of this baby and I was like beside myself. I had it happen in the city. This woman was like, I'm pregnant. I'm eight weeks pregnant. I've never, she's like, I read your books. She like found me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So, I mean, we can't even track that. That you can't even track. Like I sell thousands of books, honestly, like a, a month, you know? So I can't even track that. But or at least a thousand books a month, I think is kind of what we're at right now insane. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard tracking system, but I, you know, uh, saying in the fertility world, or at least I've heard some of my favorite doctors say it, like, you remember the ones that you, it makes me want to cry. You remember the ones that you weren't able to help or that couldn't get there, you know? And so they do, they stick out. And at times I have kept tabs on them. So there are a handful that I know didn't go on to, you know, have children, but they created in other ways, you know, and have beautiful lives. Totally. And on that note, I want to talk about two things. First, we'll kick off with the black and white stuff. And then I want to get a little woo because, well, woohoo. <laughs> so what would you say are some of the key factors that contribute to egg quality and 
different like lifestyle changes and interventions you often recommend to your clients? Like what are like the most common things you see get in there and change just based on like textbook lab work? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing that everyone needs to know, and I feel like it should be drilled into every single woman, is there's not a single test out there to measure egg quality unless we're doing IVF and genetically testing those embryos. But even then, that testing at this stage of the game is not as accurate as they once thought. So, you know, if you have high FSH, if you have low AMH, if you're over the age of 40 or even now over the age of 35, they put a lot of pressure on women too. That by no means means your eggs are all bad. So like really take that in. And even if you have a diminished ovarian reserve, whether that's premature or right on time with your age group, there are still good eggs in there. There was a very large study done looking just at eggs. And, you know, I'm going to generalize the results, but um, basically like women in their early 30s, like 70% of their eggs were still good. By your mid 30s, 60% of your eggs were still good. By your early 40s, it was 40% of your eggs are still good. And by your mid 40s, and they the, te- the study went up to age, I think, 45, I think they just said 45 plus, it still was like something like 30% of the eggs were good. And so you have to remember, even in menopause, we still have about a thousand eggs left. So we don't entirely run out of eggs. And now there is also a large body of research that's been growing for the last 20 years showing that there also are ovarian stem cells. We don't know when they activate or how. If we're actually running out of eggs the way we've been told all this time, there's a lot of like question around that and a lot of cool innovation going on around these ovarian stem cells and ovarian stem cells in general and like rejuvenating the ovaries. But so besides all that, which I think is like the foundation for everyone to understand that no one can tell you all your eggs are bad. No one. And don't take that as an answer. That, again, is lazy medicine, in my opinion. But I'll look overall at like yeah, thyroid function as a big indicator of how like so to me, always it's about fertility is an extension of health. Egg quality is an extension. Sperm quality is an extension of health. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to look. How's your digestion? How's your sleep? What's your skin like? How are your cycles? What's your thyroid doing? What's your vitamin D status? You know, what's your diet? Of course, I'm going to look at environmental factors. Really think that all the toxins in bath and beauty products are playing a significant role impacting women's hormones. And then all of the, you know, pesticides in our foods having a significant impact on our reproductive capabilities, both male and female. So, you know, baseline, I'm going there. I'm looking at a diet. I'm, of course, having them, you know, get in the bone broth on a regular basis. And we love, you know, we love the beauty of the broth. We love that. And I'm having them eat a nutrient-dense diet. I, you know, I think all foods should be allowed, but just that it should be real food and that we should know whether or not it triggers you, right? So I like to do elimination diets with my patients and then, you know, kind of see what foods are doing what to their body. I feel like that's the best way we can understand how your body is assimilating and digesting its nutrients. Big fan of animal protein. That's just, you know, it's my Chinese medicine roots, but I also honestly... I see it have a big impact on fertility when people are vegetarian or vegan for a long period of time. And most of my vegetarians and vegans are willing, at least they'll put in some broth or they'll do like the fish or the algae broths. I think those are, you know, close seconds, if you will. But eggs and maybe some fish, you know, I think we can get there. They don't have to eat meat. And then, of course, we're looking at, you know, nature's antioxidants and getting in a ton of vegetables to really help with quality. So you want to think about improving quality is about, I think, reducing inflammation, 
improving nutrient absorption. So we could we could extend that to healing the gut, right? Knowing if there's low-lying gut infections, knowing if there's gut permeability or just poor digestion. And I, and I can get that from an intake, right? Someone tells me, oh, I have eczema, I have psoriasis, or I have gas, I have bloating on a regular basis. I'm like, okay, you're not absorbing your foods, you know? I mean, some women will come to me and they're, they're pooping twice a week, you know? And their doctors don't even ask about their pooping capabilities, you know? And I'm like, well, you're toxic. On the inside, of course, your cells are going to be compromised. And you have to think about the cells in the eggs inside your ovaries or like all the other cells in your body. They're getting the same exposure. So we really want to like reduce that toxic load and then improve the, you know, and reduce inflammation and improve nutrient absorption to then amplify quality. So I don't really care about the quantity left, right? We really want to maximize quality. Uh, there's two spin-offs that go in. There's so much. And then your brain on that. I know. Well, is it, I guess, safe to say, I would just based on what you just said, it would appear that arguably 90 to 95% of this is actually, I'll say 90% is diet, maybe 5% environmental toxins, stroke toxins you use on yourself if it's not like clean products. And maybe another five is, I don't know, maybe it's uh, genetics or maybe it's, yeah, I think the toxins play a bigger role than 5%, though, honestly. I would think it would be more like, yeah, even 20. You know, someone asked me, it was a while ago, but I used the quote a lot. And I was on a podcast and she said, what do you think is the lowest hanging fruit that would have an impact on fertility? You know, and I said the chemicals in our environment, the chemicals that, you know, in our food, of course, but then the Bath and Beauty products. And she was kind of astonished by that. You know, she was like, are you serious? And I was like, you know, you write any books or do any research, you know, my book, Body Belief, like I dig into all the research there. And it's like, I think since the 1980s, we've introduced over 100,000 chemicals into our environment. And during that time frame, we have seen these, you know, illnesses skyrocket. I mean, infertility being one of them. But I do think to your point about genetics, like, there is a genetic predisposition that we all have. Like our genes are not set in stone the way we once thought, right? There's so much we can do with epigenetic. And we know that now. And the research is very solid about that. I talked about that in my very first book that came out in 2010, which no one was talking about epigenetics back then. Nobody. Like people were like, you're crazy. You know, and I was like, no, like we can change this stuff. This is not, we are not, you are not destined to endometriosis just because your mother had it. You probably have a predisposition. And how you live your life is going to impact how that's going to turn on or turn off. But so the genetic piece. Yeah, it's 2010. I know. I always feel so proud about that, to be honest. And I talked about so I talked about soy and how bad it was in, in 2010, too. Yes. I have in, in the book, it's called Chill and Get Healthy. I have a chapter. It's called Bigger is Not Better. Soy sucks. Sugar is evil or something like that. I think that was like the nutrition chapter. Soy sucks is what I said. And people were I remember being like interviewed by like Shape magazine and they were like, soy is good. I'm like, it is not. Oh, my God. Like, stop with the freaking soy butter. Good fermented, properly made tofu or miso. Yeah, totally. But if you're not making your own soy milk, please don't drink it. That would be my recommendation. Anyway, now I digress. But so I would think I I think diet, though, is, is tremendous. And I also like would never underestimate mindset and stress levels, because a big thing about fertility is You know, I always kind of think of the nervous system. We have like two pathways. We have, you know, fight or flight, and then we have rest, relax, and reproduce. And so if we are in a very stressful, and it doesn't mean like living in a war zone, although obviously in the state age, that's still something that can apply, unfortunately. Um, But 
just living in a chronic state of stress, just like do, 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 working 80 hours, not eating enough, like your body in a chronic state of stress, it will not prioritize fertility. So we have to, and a lot of that is diet and nourishment, but it's also the slowing down of like, we've got to shift you from this go, go, go into this kind of receiving mode. I think nervous system plays a ginormous part of it. And, you know, we'll touch upon the woo later. People call it woo, but slowing down meditation. I'm excited to hit all of that. But something that sticks out in my mind, A, because of selfishly my age and the age of all my peers, I just turned 34. And, you know, how you say, I think you said around 35, it goes to 40%. But these studies, correct me if I'm wrong, are based off of your average person. So your average person with your average diet doing your average things. So, I mean... You've seen products from like, you know, CVS or Bath and Body Works, you know what I mean? Like loaded with shit. So I don't, (laughs) I love it. I don't think, obviously it's not amazing, but I don't think it's that bad because it's based on the average person. So if you were someone that was 40 and you're like, okay, I want to have a kid, I'm 40, I'm going to clean my act up with diet and environmental toxins. You can do it. What do you say their odds are? If they're actively trying every month and their partner is also doing a lot of the same things. I mean, I think the fertility clinics would probably tell you you have a 10 or a 15 percent chance of conceiving naturally. But that's each cycle. You got to keep that in mind. So a lot of times the stats that are thrown out there are very skewed and skewed intentionally, I think, to instill a lot of fear. <laughs> so they'll say oh, you have a 5 percent chance of getting pregnant. Like I just got an email right before I came on. One of my patients, she's 44. She's like, trying to find a new doctor. And she's like, you know, the conversation always goes to, well, you know, you're 44, you have a 5% chance. 5% chance each cycle. So five times 12, 60% chance in the year, right? So you have to remember that. No one explains that. No one explains that. So I think a 40-year-old, I got pregnant the second month we tried and I was 40 years old and I had a healthy child. And I started doing everything I said to do probably at like 35. You know what I mean? I definitely like lived the lifestyle, but I was healthy prior to that too, you know, but but I really was living what practicing what I preach, I would say, because I wrote, yes, you can get pregnant. I think I was 35. No, I was 36, I think, or 37. I can't remember now. But anyway, I did everything I said others to do and got pregnant the second month we tried. And so and my husband was older and not as healthy, you know, pretty healthy guy, but not on my level. And he got there eventually. But so I think and there's stats in yes, you can get pregnant. I think it's something like, Women aged 30 to 35 with one year of trying, 85% of them are pregnant within a year. And then I think from 35 to 40, it's something like 78% are pregnant within the year. And that's, wow. those are, those are actual studies that are out there. Again, that aren't unfortunately often talked about, but incrementally goes down. I think I'd say per five years, probably. Even if you want to err on the side of caution, 10%. So say you're close to 40, maybe you have a 75% chance in that year of trying to conceive. As long as you're, you know, and a year, I would really just say 12 months of actively trying because not everybody has. And that's our natural. That's Yeah, that's our natural. Wow. And that's without assistance. Okay, so two more spin-off questions. Yeah. How much does, because I've heard a lot that, you know, some women throw the kitchen sink at this and they're still not getting pregnant, but they never look at the male partner And I understand that sperm could be a lot to do with this, too. I would love to talk a bit about sperm. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's upwards of 40 percent of fertility is male factor. 
And then it's something like then there's like, you know, the two circles are separate, right? There's female and male. And then together, then there's a, a bunch of people that have both male and female factor. Yeah, most sperm doesn't get checked until you've been trying for at least six months and not getting pregnant. We should check sperm right away. You know, it's pretty changeable and pretty quickly. So, you know, and I always have like my baseline of like, they should all be on a good fish oil. They should all be on like a good multi or I love a good like spirulina supplement, you know, taking, making sure the vitamin D status is checked, making sure their thyroid is checked. But sperm can be improved. But I think there has to be or there should be. I would love a world where there was or is a preconception plan for both partners if you're in a heterosexual relationship and you can try naturally at home three months in the lead up, just like you would, you know, I always say like plan for a wedding or, you know, save for retirement. Like this should be a part of the plan and we get you on certain supplements. We get you eating, you know, a less processed standard American diet and move more into like whole foods, nutrient dense diet, minimize the toxic exposure on all the levels. And yeah, I think you could get there pretty quickly. Taking notes of what to go. Yeah. I mean, sperm plays a significant role. And I mean, I can't tell you how many patients I've had where the doctors just keep pointing the finger at the woman. And then we do finally do a semen analysis and we see, you know. It's crazy how many things in modern medicine are just overlooked. I experienced it in different things with like my hypothyroid that I no longer have from diet. But So I love this. This gives, I think, a lot of our listeners and myself a ton of hope. I want to get your take on freezing eggs. How do you feel about that? What's the right age to do it? Is there a right age to do it? And all that stuff. First, I'll caveat it with there is cool innovation going on now. It's actually like happening. It's still experimental and maybe not FDA approved at this point or likely not FDA approved at this point. But where in the future will be instead of using donor eggs, you will use your own egg and they change out the mitochondria from a younger woman's eggs. So it's called a mitochondrial transplant. So more and more women like I mean, I have women working with who I would consider the top doctors in the United States. There's a handful of them. I won't name names just to not rock any boats, but that are now recommending their fertility clients to freeze, even if they're in a couple, married, get whatever freeze a batch of eggs to just have on ice if in case we ever need to do this transplant kind of situation. I think it's called mitochondrial transplant. You can search it. It's being done in other countries, but the U.S. is pretty strict about certain things in the FDA. So I don't know that we're doing it yet. But I'm so for that reason, <laughs> but what'd you say? But not about others. I know. <laughs> um, well, because I mean, the fertility industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. You know what I mean? We take away some of the, or we help them get pregnant faster. We're going to lose a lot of money in the country. Pharmaceuticals play a huge role in it. Oh, yeah. And I'll talk about that another time. But, um, topic. <laughs> but so is there a right age to freeze eggs? I have different opinions. Now with this new kind of information, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, maybe we should all just have some eggs on ice, you know, and then especially, this is how I always break it down in the clinic when girls come to me because- Mind you, I practiced in New York City for 20 years. So it's just that typical demographic. Then I was one of them like working, getting married later, these kinds of things. If you have the financial resources or your company covers egg freezing, I think it's smart to bank some eggs with the understanding. And there is research, probably pull it up pretty quickly. But I think just ballpark, you probably need about 20 to 30 eggs, you know, to almost no one can guarantee to get like one to two live births, you know, so to think about that too. I've had countless women freeze eggs and they don't 
turn into anything. When we thaw them, they they die upon thawing or they don't make embryos. So it's not a guarantee. But I also have one woman who has a surrogate pregnant with an egg of hers from when she was 40 that she froze. So like it does also work out. So I don't want to poo-poo it by any means, but really understand that it is not a guarantee. And and I think not necessarily even like an insurance policy, like the way it's pitched. I think it's a smart option. And I think the same thing, if you're going to do it, I don't really know that age, you know, maybe people who are listening here like, yeah, I think you can easily, doctors are freezing eggs all the way into women in their 40s now. So, but I think if you're on the younger side and, you know, so if you have the resources or work will cover it, it's really impacting you. So like I was a single woman in my 30s dating and I know the vibe of, is this going to be the husband vibe? Like if it's impacting you on that first date where you're like, is this the man I'm going to have babies with versus I just want to go out and have fun and see if this is like the right fit, then maybe it's something to do because it takes pressure off. But in the understanding, this is not the guarantee of future children. It was something that was developed for women who were diagnosed with cancer and had to go through treatment. So they would retrieve eggs first because the chemo will do a number on the eggs, regardless of where the cancer is. And I have had women successfully have children from that. I've also had women not successfully have children from that. And they have to move on to donor because they didn't. After chemo. After chemo. So you would freeze eggs before you start your treatment, basically. And then, and I just had a call earlier today with one of my girls, 30. I think she's 37. Uh, You know, she has age age three or two breast cancer and going through treatment. Now, well, we've frozen eggs and we're hopeful. Um, And they have some newer protocols too, which is pretty cool to preserve fertility, if you will. So anyway, I mean, I know I'm making this bigger thing. If you are to freeze your eggs, I think in your 30s, probably better than in your 40s. But also I have 40-year-olds who are healthier than 30-year-olds, you know, in my practice. So, you know, I don't know that we put an age on it, but definitely prep. Do that three-month prep work. Like read my book, Yes, You Can Get Pregnant. Follow the protocol in there. Like, do your best. Like, take it seriously. Don't just assume because you're 33 that all your eggs are good or that you're going to have an easy time with it. The hormones can do a number on the cycle. So I really think prepping, not on the cycle, on you after you do the retrievals, I really think prepping is key. And some docs really like to over-medicate. I would also kind of like do your research, you know, and ask lots of questions and talk to friends that have done it and get their feedback, like really collect information on this before you go and do it. Because it's big spend. I think, you know, you're looking at like 13 grand or something like that in the U.S. So I think you really have to weigh it all out. Like I remember for me, you know, I was still single. I was like 36, 37. I mean, I didn't meet my husband until I was 39. And, you know, I had a lot of family friends and things like that were even patients that were like, you should freeze eggs, you should freeze eggs. And I was like, you know what? I'm working on my eggs right now every day with my lifestyle choices. So I feel good about that. But I could see now, like now I'm in my later 40s. And if I wanted a second child, you know what I mean? Maybe if I had frozen eggs, maybe, you know what I mean? I could see where maybe that would have been something like a cushion of some sort. But I don't know. You know, it's I interviewed two different doctors for my book. Yes, you can get pregnant. Reproductive endocrinologist. And they both said that even with a woman having eggs on ice from previous egg freezing when she was younger, and she winds up, you know, not getting pregnant naturally. Right now she's in a relationship. She's been trying. She comes to the IVF clinic. I have these eggs. I'm not getting pregnant naturally. They still do a fresh IVF cycle. They still want fresh eggs real time. So you're still going to, you know, and then you're also going to maybe go to the frozen. So keep that in mind, too. So let's talk a little about IVF. We covered a little bit of natural. And then I want to hop back into the process from start to finish with all the kitchen sinks thrown at it. But let's touch a little bit upon IVF. 
because I think it's important for people to have all their options out there. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would love for you to, I guess, kind of explain how that process looks like. And I mean, I'm going to assume a good candidate for someone who can't get pregnant after they've thrown the kitchen sink at it. Sure. And some women are pushed to do it and some go to it, I think, sooner than they necessarily need to. Although I, you know, firmly stand by, I will always meet you where you're at and I always support your decision. So if you're like, I've been trying for six months, I'm 39 and I'm ready to do IVF. Okay, that's fine. I still think you have time and I still think we don't have to be in this pressure cooker. But so then my focus would be prep work, right? So I would love three months in the lead up. Hopefully you've already been kind of doing the prep work, you know, while you were trying naturally. So typically you're going to go in and your fertility doctor is going to look at your baseline on cycle day three with cycle day one being the first day of bleeding. They're going to look at your hormone levels, like your estrogen and your FSH. They'll do a semen analysis. They'll do, they'll check to make sure your fallopian tubes are open. They probably will do a sonogram on your uterus, not look for fi fibroids, polyps, things of that nature. And then they'll count your follicles and your ovaries. And then they'll kind of come up with a protocol and say, you know, on the next, you know, time you get your period, we're going to start meds, usually start meds for stimulation to grow more eggs. You're going to, the idea with IVF is we're going to give you medicine to make your ovaries create more than the one dominant follicle it makes in its own natural cycle. And then we're going to go in and retrieve them before you ovulate and then take those eggs and fertilize them with the sperm in a lab and let them grow out for three to five days, depending on the protocol and the clinic and all these things, and then either freeze them or biopsy them and test them or transfer into your uterus. And I mean, that's typically the process. And it is good for like, I did a, a fertility hot seat earlier today, which is something I do like monthly on my Instagram channel. But she's a doctor, this woman, and she doesn't have any fallopian tubes. She had she lost them due to, you know, an abscess or something like that. So her only option is IVF because she can't get pregnant naturally without fallopian tubes, right? So so for her, you know, it's like, that's how we have to look at it. And for some doctors too, so that one thing, some doctors will push women with only one fallopian tube that they have to do IVF. I've seen plenty of women with one tubes get pregnant naturally. One ovary, endometriosis, they assume IVF is a bypass to endo, not always because endo is a systemic inflammatory condition, which can impact lots of other things, not just the getting pregnant piece. A lot of times the staying pregnant piece is also impacted. And then age. But there does seem to be some data that women in their mid-40s do better at home or with IUIs than with IVF. And I think it's because the meds, the meds can be really, maybe inflammatory is the word I'll use. You know, they're just, they can be really intense for the body and they can also compromise egg quality. And the older we get, even if our eggs aren't all bad, they're just more sensitive and fragile. And so older women in their, we'll call them in their mid 40s, tend to do better with low stem or mini IVF. So there's, you know, there's kind of like all sorts of different things out there. I really, really strongly urge anybody who is doing IVF and not getting results to get a second and a third opinion, like really hop around to different clinics, get different doctors approaches, because there's a lot of different approaches out there now. And a lot of times the the standardized approach, because typically like Melissa, you'll go in there like, oh, she's 34. This is the protocol. She gets 350 gonalefs, 150 menopure. Those are just the meds. And, you know, estrogen priming or not. And they just kind of like push you through because you're kind of like on par with your other 34 year old, you know, sisters, if you will, hormonally and things like that. But not everybody's going to respond exactly the same, you know, so it's so what happens is you get on this hamster wheel of IVF where 
you think IVF, similar to egg freezing, is a guarantee of a child. And it's not always necessarily, but it might not be. And a lot of times the blame falls on the woman and her eggs, even if she's 34. Oh, it's your eggs. They're all bad. That's why. And that's usually not the case. Then you need another opinion, you need another clinic. Another thing that is really overlooked before women are pushed to IVF, in my opinion, should be looked at first is the uterine environment. Like I really strongly push a test called the hysteroscopy which is a surgical procedure, but you go in and you look at the uterine environment, you test the uterine environment, you make sure there's no scar tissue, there's no fibroids, there's no cysts, there's no na 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 No one does that until maybe you had one or two failed IVF transfers, which to me is, is backwards. Totally. It's crazy. My girlfriend, she's pregnant with her third kid. She's like glowing picture face of health and wellness. She's, I think, 36 or 37. And she does, you know, a lot of things very holistically. She's had all home births. This is our third boy. And they like said at the doctor's office, they're like, you do know this is a geriatric pregnancy. And she's like, excuse me? Like you should Over see- 35. Yeah. Over 35, they call it now. It's yeah. crazy. Horrible. Like, Horrible. But I think there's like a lot of shaming. Whether, you know, I don't think they consciously are like, I'm shaming you. But I think the undertones, I think also just like stress women out. And stress, I think, is a huge factor. And like, it's like telling yourself not to be nervous, but you're nervous. And the nerves create stress and that just a vicious cycle. So many different ways. I'm going to think it's obvious. It might not be obvious, but out of all the things we've talked about that I'm going to assume just from talking to you that you prefer the natural route, less of the kitchen sink at it as first and foremost. And obviously you'll support anyone, like you said, on their journey. Yeah. They are. Yeah. So, and I tend to agree with that. Let's strip everything down. Like the worst case scenario, you're going to be the picture perfect of health and figure everything else out. And I know we also talked a bit about it, but someone comes to you after they've read your amazing book. That should be the first step, getting the book. And then you're going to then, you know, remove processed foods, put them on a whole foods diet, dense in nutrients. Could you tell us what like a day of diet would look like? And then we can move on to like the other things you would move on to for them outside of diet. Yeah. So, I mean, my general rules are 80 to 100 grams of protein a day, six to eight servings of vegetables, trying not to go more than three hours between meals with protein. So I'm not pushing intermittent fasting by any means for any woman out there trying to conceive. It just doesn't seem... Also, there's just not any research on women and fertility. So let's not do it. Um, There's my my two cents. So, I mean, a typical day is like, you know, bone broth in the morning or bone broth protein powder, collagen peptide, something like that with maybe your hot morning beverage, whether it's tea or coffee. I think you can have caffeine when trying to conceive. I know there's some controversy around that. It's just how it's consumed and when it's consumed, right? So ideally, it's consumed kind of with eating, not just coffee on an empty stomach kind of thing. And so you're, you know, then you're getting in your bone broth at some point, four to six ounces a day is usually my recommendation. And then I aim for 30 grams of protein within three hours of waking. That's kind of my general rule with all my clients. And then if you do that, 30 grams protein, if you can get two or three servings of vegetables too, like your day is set because then you can have a little like protein rich snack. Then you can have a lunch with some protein and veg, maybe another 20, 30 grams. And then same thing for dinner. And then you're easily in your parameters. And then if you're eating nutrient dense protein like eggs and bone broth and salmon and things of that nature, you're getting plenty of fat. I also will sometimes throw in like, I want a half an avocado a day and a half of a sweet potato or a whole medium-sized sweet potato a day. You know, those are like kind of 
the baseline's there. And then from a supplement perspective, I always want to make sure we're doing something with methylfolate and not doing folic acid. Um, I think that's a big one. Fish oil, you know, like two grams of fish oil, like a good amount of fish oil. I like cod liver oil over regular fish oil because of the vitamin A and vitamin D. Choline-rich foods and supplement if we need it. There's a lot of good prenatals out there now, though, that have a good amount of choline. Choline is very important to fertility. A probiotic, vitamin D if you need it. Did I already say that? And then maybe depending on the age and kind of what else is going on, like an antioxidant or something like that from a supplement perspective. Obviously, drinking enough water, staying hydrated, you know, about like half your body weight in ounces. Minimizing alcohol. I do think alcohol can be a part of your life, though, you know, a couple drinks a week kind of thing. Ideally organic. I think even CCRM, one of the big fertility clinics um, in the U.S. says, I think they say three to five drinks a week for women, five to seven for men, something like that while they're trying to conceive. It, it kind of depends on the case and kind of where we're at. I'm not saying you have to drink by any I'm just saying it could be part of it. I get you. You would be you would imagine the backlash I get when they're like, "Alcohol!" You said I should drink one on one. You know what? It's great that they don't have to eliminate it, and that's it. I do think though, it's like we just choose a healthy lifestyle. Like, and then non toxic with your bath and beauty products. There's so many great product lines out there right now that are free of everything. Like, and pure enough to eat. That is my whole thing. I have a skincare line. And my whole thing is like, if you can't eat it, you shouldn't put it on your skin. And that might be too extreme for somebody, some people, but I think non-toxic Beth and Beauty products, get your partner, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, like get your partner doing the same types of things, same kind of supplements, you know, change over Beth and Beauty products. Sleep is so important and so overlooked. And then some kind of mindset practice, you know, or like, and not even like, I don't know that you have to be sitting and meditating for 20 minutes twice a day. I mean, I think that's extreme, but like. Easy, Amy. It, yeah, there we go. Two times. <laughs> you know, it's like I fall in and out of my own meditation practice, but like I also make sure I'm like dancing and singing to a song then on the, you know, or something like that. Having some kind of fun, you know, and especially in a partnership, like to, to touch upon the woo stuff for a second, too, of like one of the things I'll do with my clients is like, what is your why? I want you to focus on your why. What's your reason? Like, why do you ha- want to have a human with this human in this crazy world at this crazy time? Why do you want to bring a human ho- through? Like, you know, like, what do you want to do differently than the generation before? What? How do you want to prepare the child? Like, really think like macro about this too versus it's my time. I'm 35. I just got married. I need to have the two children and check those boxes. You know what I mean? Like, let's think bigger picture. How do you want to be as a mom? Are you showing up that way in your life right now? Like, how are you nourishing you is another really big piece that I come in with with my clients. And then, of course, there's baseline testing. You know, I, I we can share it in the show notes, but I think it's amyrouth.com slash fertility labs is the opt-in. That's like the baseline testing I think every woman should get before they start trying to conceive. And then, you know, what's your mental time frame? Like, are you okay if this takes six to nine to 12 months? At what point, and I always say, ask her if you can change your mind at any point, but like, at what point do you think you'd move to fertility treatments? You know, and then like, and that's the stuff I really help with all my clients. And like, we really come up with a kind of like a big game plan like that, like protocol, of course. And then the game plan, what feels good to you right now? Is it the trying is hard. It's not easy. Every two week wait sucks. And when you get your period, it sucks, you know? And also you start to doubt, like you start to doubt yourself. Like I remember for me, I was like, you know, pressure's on. I hope I know what the hell I'm talking about. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the pressure is on. It's on because now you're actually, you've 
you know, you're taking off the condom. You're you're actually doing it, you know, and it's like, you know, and then miscarriages. I mean, there's just so many things. So I think if you can be naive about it, you know, unfortunately in this world now, I don't think we can anymore, which I also think is a beautiful thing. Like, I think everybody sharing their stories is, is so helpful to so many, but, you know, almost like be loose about it. Like, okay, 2024 is the year, you know, that I would like to get pregnant. So that could be December of 2024, you know, like be loose about it and then know that there's like, okay, here's plan, you know, option A, and then we might move to option B at some point, which then maybe is meeting with a fertility clinic, discussing an IUI or an IVF, or there's other things out there. Now there's this ovarian PRP. There's like, there's all sorts of cool stuff, you know, acupuncture, I would definitely have be part of a protocol. Chinese herbs too, if you're meeting with an herbalist, like you guys out in California, everybody's an herbalist that's an acupuncturist, just how the law is. Um, I think herbs can play a really great role in regulating cycles and optimizing fertility. Wow. Uh, To be honest with you, like this, the protocol, like food and everything, I think whether you want a kid or not, it sounds like a great protocol because if your body can't bear a child, whether you want one or not, it just shows you like, you know, it's a great prior. It doesn't have enough energy to prioritize it. I mean, that's really like if we look at it from a very fundamental, like basic, you know, almost Darwinian perspective of like it is survival of the fittest. Like, If your body is not prioritizing fertility, it's because it thinks it has bigger fish to fry. It's got something else it needs to manage or it's not getting what it needs. So we have to take that body out of survival mode and get it into thriving mode, right? That's really the goal. And I agree, like to me, and people say this all the time, like, oh, Amy, I'm not trying to get pregnant. Can I still see you? I'm like, protocol's kind of the same. I gotta be honest. You know, I mean, I I tweak things, obviously, for, you know, different health conditions and things like that. But, um, and we really do try to individualize care. But generally speaking, yeah, I think most people would benefit from this kind of lifestyle. I know. Like some of the things, obviously, I already do, but something you you said that I caught on because I've heard it before and I hear it because I'm guilty of it. I have in the morning my iced latte and I hear over and over, especially in Chinese medicine, hot drinks, hot drinks in the morning. But it's funny. So I am totally good. There's you should think about, too. I mean, here's another business idea for you, too. But like because I have girls that do this and they love it. And I've done it myself, too, is your cup. I have my tea somewhere because I've been sitting in bed all day. This is my tea from this morning. But when you make it in the morning, like a third or half is bone broth. And then the rest is coffee. And you can add some like collagen, not collagen. You can add some fat like ghee or coconut oil or something like that and some milk. If you can do dairy, great. Otherwise, like nut milks, you will not taste the bone broth. And then for you, you're getting in your protein and you're not having that on an empty stomach. The ice, I agree. Like, I'm not a huge fan of ice beverages. I try to get women away from it. You could go to like room temperature or you could get it and not drink it right away. Start with something else. Start with start, bone broth. Start with your bone broth. You and those packets. I'm sure you got hundreds of them everywhere. Well, I do. <laughs> have your bone broth. Those packets are amazing, by the way. All my girls that I've introduced are just like obsessed. So it's so great thing. But yeah, I think caffeine on an empty stomach is just does a number on our blood sugar and our blood sugar does a number on our hormones. And so you really want to think about it from that perspective. And it's also like adrenal wise, it's just starting the day off like you're probably doomed for a crash around two o'clock. You it's know, and you don't your adrenals for sure. I this is kind of off topic, but not really. I want to talk about milks quickly because I think so many people go between I think oat and soy are crap. And there's a misconception now that people should be on one of these nut milks. But, you know, now people are going back to the whole milks. I would love to hear your take on milks. 
I mean, if you can digest dairy, you can eat it, right? Like, but if you can't, then don't. I mean, that's it for me. If dairy, like, and some people can have just that smidgen of dairy every day in their coffee and they're perfectly fine. But if they had like cheese at lunch and then cheese at dinner or something like that, upset tummy. So I think you have to know your body. Uh, but I don't think dairy by any means is bad for you unless you can't digest it well. If you, know. you had no ailments, like being like lactose intolerant, for example, what to be the most optimal self with your morning coffee, what milk, whether oh, I would use full fat organic or like full fat cream, like, yeah. you know, like buttermilk kind of stuff, like the real deal. Yeah. I'm going to tomorrow morning make a bone broth coffee. Do it. No, I, I'm telling you, it, it's actually pretty delicious. Get one of those like hand mixers, mix it up, make it frothy. Yeah, one on the way to get here today from Amazon. Yeah. Same frequency. Totally. But I think you could think about that too of like, you know, the way like mud coffee, like they have their little powder concoction situation thing. You, you come up with something there, you know, get team that. up with, with like bulletproof people, get some good coffee in the mix, sell a little coffee drink situation, sell the whole thing an idea and i did porn right yeah and but but like then you're getting like and some people criticize me they're like coffee with collagen is not breakfast like i hear other people out there and i know they're attacking me and i'm like but coffee with bone broth that is food like i'm sorry you are making a meal and and you know collagen i think is a solid b in comparison to real deal bone broth of course so i would prefer the real stuff in there I were a little more organized, that's how I would do it. Like I go through phases where I'm totally doing that on a regular basis and then not because who doesn't love also like I make a bone broth with like just coconut milk and like a little turmeric and ginger or cinnamon and it's freaking delicious. So because like you won't even taste the bone broth in your coffee drink or your tea. Yeah. No, you won't even taste it. I creamy yumminess. It just makes it like rich, really. Yeah. Um, on that note with breakfast yeah. and stuff. I've been hearing the stuff always changes, right? Have a big breath, breakfast, pack of protein. And you even said get most of your protein in the morning, normal size lunch, small dinner hours, like yeah. early, early dinner, small dinner. Yeah. yeah. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah. Fertility? yeah. You know, I think going like the eight to eight, like the 12 hour fast, if you will, is perfectly fine. Um, I try not to go more than 12 with my girls, to be honest. So I'm um, seven to seven, six to six, like it kind of just depends on your routine and your life. Like uh, we sleep in this house, so I don't get up till 730, you know, so our last we, we do eat dinner at seven, usually 645, seven o'clock. But yeah, that it should be on the lighter side. But it also really depends on the patient and what they're doing and going on. Usually, like in our house, it's it's pretty much grain-free, our dinners. It's pretty much just protein and veg. And on the lighter side, and the grains are happening earlier in the day if they're happening. But yeah, you know, I think however you do it, I kind of tend to see my patients doing better when it's kind of protein all day long throughout the day. Yeah. Not these huge gaps, you know, like a lot of women will come to me and they're they're having like five, six-hour gaps in, in meals. And it's like they're they're crashing and their hormones, their hormones show it and their cycles show it. And they're, and I feel like their egg quality, because we can see progesterone is really kind of crappy in the luteal phase. And that's usually a sign that the egg wasn't as healthy as it could be. So, you know, we have indicators that like, okay, we could do better. And what kind of, I guess, snacks in between meals would you recommend for those clients to keep getting that protein in? I love broth. I love meat sticks. I love uh, pork rinds. I love those pork rinds from uh, Epic. They're so freaking good. Oh, yeah. Um, Beef liver bites. I'm obsessed. 
so good. Yeah. So like, and if you can do nuts and seeds, like, you know, like I had pear earlier with like some sun butter, hummus and, you know, crackers or, you know, celery, carrots, that kind of stuff, hard-boiled eggs. I'll have patients make a smoothie. That's like kind of their mid a morning snack and then their after lunch snack, like you have it in a thermos for the whole day. So it's like you drink a little bit now and then you have a little bit later, that kind of stuff. Oh, like had a great idea. Or even bone broth, like make a huge canister of bone broth. I have a lot of teachers and they can't really snack during the day. So they just have a canister like the way you would have your tea, but they have broth in there or soup. And so they're getting little sips of protein all throughout that, you know, and you can whisk an egg, right? I love bone broth, egg drop soup. You can I sit down, you don't have to eat it. Egg and having the bone broth cook it. It's the best the best i do it too i have i just ate butternut squash soup for lunch i whisk an egg in there so it's like i you know this is it's a whole meal in a in a, in a bowl oh i love your mug amy ralph mug amy ralph mug yeah oh, i know someone gave it's this great one of my best friends gave me this isn't it? i so, love it got it's my so hand on the inside i know i love it well i think this is an amazing yeah. place to stop and i would love to have you on again in the future i I'm blown away. And even though I'm not currently trying to get pregnant, I'm doing so many takeaways. You're doing so many things. Yeah, you're doing so many Oh, but so many takeaways and validations of thoughts and need to get that smoothie recipe. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I think I, I'll, I can give you, uh, there's a link on my site too that you can share in the show notes of like my fertility uh, smoothie recipes. That would be great. And um, Amy, where could everyone find you and your book? Yeah, so everything's on my website at amyraup.com. And then I'm really active on Instagram and kind of sort of active on TikTok. I think those are my biggies. Uh, I'm trying to get more active on TikTok. It's fun. I enjoy it, but I just like, oh, got another one. But I really enjoy supporting my community, especially on Instagram. And, you know, I have a great following there and a great community. And then, yeah, all the ways to work with me and all that stuff is all on my website. I love it. What an amazing interview. Thank you so much. for Thank you so much. Thank you.